Goddag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Jeg har i den her uge haft det privilegium at tale med den legendariske italienske-amerikanske forfatter, forsker og feminist Silvia Federici. Det har jeg i anledning af, at hendes absolute hovedværk, Caliban and the Witch, en bog, der kom i 2004 og er oversat til mere end 20 sprog, og som er en ufatteligt original og tankevækkende afdækning af det historiske forhold mellem kvindeundertrykkelse og kapitalisme, endelig er udkommet på dansk. Bogen er udkommet på informationsforlag, der hedder Caliban og Heksen. I den her samtale taler jeg med Federici om, hvordan hun voksede op i Italien, hvad det var for et patriarkalt samfund, hun voksede op i, hvordan hun kom fra forståelsen af kvindefrigørelse frem til en kritik af Karl Marx, og hvordan hun ser fronterne for kvindefrigørelsen, kapitalismen og den store politiske frigørelse i dag. Det her er min samtale med Silvia Federici. Well, I want to ask you first, you've been part of the feminist movement for half a century now. It's this year, it's 50 years ago, since you co-founded International Feminist Collective. And at the time, what was your own way to feminism? I grew up in Italy in the post-war period. Italy that was coming out from decades of fascism and the culture did not change because fascism was demoted. Uh, Italy had a very masculinist, patriarchal culture. And though in my family, I was always encouraged to read, to go to school. My father was a teacher. And so he actually, he protected always and encouraged me, if not forced me, to, to not be confined to domestic work. Uh, to think of a future for myself as also as an intellectual. Nevertheless, you know, I grew up in a culture and in my family as well, you know, that uh, the roles for women were still pretty much defined. And I often say that by the time I was 10 or 11, I was a feminist. I didn't know the world, but I was constantly rebelling against all the limitations that were posed on me. Say, oh, you're a girl, you have to behave this way and look at the way you're looking and keep your legs uh, crossed, et cetera, et cetera, all of that. And so it was very clear to me that um, growing into womanhood would be a defeat. I felt it very strongly when I was uh, 11 or 12 that I was growing and becoming more and more, and my body would be changing. I felt it as a defeat for a long time because uh, I was aware of a society that had a very devalued concept of women. They celebrated the mother, you know, Mussolini used to give medals, you know, to the mother who had 10 children, you know, soldiers for the army to defend the fatherland. And uh, so when the, fa- and I saw in my own family, you know, my father was a good man. He loved my mother, but the relationship between my mother was a housewife and he was a teacher. He went out of the house. He came home, he told the stories. He could speak about history. The, pa- the relation was very clear. There was a paternalistic relation in my family. 
And my sister and I, every day, by the time we were 10, 12, uh, after lunch, would be commenting on their interaction. We were always very, very upset that my mother would give in to his view, even when uh, there was no reason for it. And we could see that. So I had my training in my home and in my culture. So when the feminist movement began, I was in the United States, 69, 70. I was in the United States, you know, with a scholarship. It was very clear. I had no doubt. <laughs> it was instinctive, spontaneous. I had been there in a way. I didn't have the theory and the formulation. Those came later. But the experience was there. What did the theory and the ideas and the intellectual movement mean to you when you encountered that? Yeah, you know, I, my, my main most important encounter, as I've written in a number of essays, you know, was with the work that women in Italy in already in the very early 70s, starting from 1970, 71, you know, uh, in Lotta Feminista, and in particular, the work of Maria Rosa Dalla Costa, you know, were doing, which allowed me to bring together two, two aspects of my life, two aspects of my political interest, which was on one side, this, uh, I was already, you know, uh, I was studying at the University of Buffalo, in New York State. And the university was one of the first campuses, you know, they saw the formation of women's groups. So, and then I moved to New York and in New York, I was involved in a couple of women's groups. So I was already a feminist activist when uh, I encountered Maria Rosa Dalla Costa's work in 1972. And I also had, you know, I was in a leftist, you know, I was reading a bit of Marx. And um, I had grown up in a communist town in Italy. I had grown up in Emilia. Emilia was one of the few communist regions in Italy. So I knew about the workers' movement. I knew about Marx. I knew about communism. I saw myself as a, not a communist, because the communists in my town in, in Italy were, for my generation, kind of conservative, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I was more, you know, uh, in the left and in the student movement. That article, that essay by Maria Rosa Dalla Costa helped me to bring together the different part of my political, intellectual, personal experience, you know, because uh, that article, you know, explained the, the discrimination, that women have historically suffered in capitalist society has been rooted you know, in the confinement to domestic work, to reproductive activities, which in capitalist society have been completely devalued, made invisible, considered non-work, considered non-productive. And so um, she actually explained you know, that this, uh, discrimination had nothing to do with the lack of productivity of this work. That on the contrary, this work was the most important work you know, in capitalist society. 
because what we call domestic work, housework, is actually a form of capitalist production, except it does not produce goods for the market, but workers for the market, because it's the work that on a day-to-day -day and generational basis reproduces people's capacity to work, what is called the labor power, what Marx calls labor power. The labor power, Marx told us, is not something natural. It is consumed in the work process and has to be regenerated, has to be reconstructed. And Maria Rosa de la Costa you know, wrote that uh, this is the work the women do on a day-to-day -day basis. And uh, so this was a revolution, intellectual political revolution. So to me, that actually came together because women in the revolutionary European tradition, uh, theoretical and practical, always had a second-class citizenship. As in, as in capitalist society, they were always considered, you know, a support, support subjects, subject who supported the struggle of the real worker, the real revolutionary, you know, the wage worker, the, the, work, the industrial worker, you know, with the, the blue collar. <laughs> and we were always seen as, uh, you know, there in a support group, in a support role. And this work instead showed that actually women's struggle had to be rooted, you know, and was rooted, you know, in a specific form of exploitation, you know, in a form of exploitation that in a way has similarity with the, the exploitation of colonial people, because the work that women would do would be fundamental for capitalist accumulation, but would be made unpaid. You'll be defined as unpaid labor, you know, and being defined as unpaid labor allow the capitalist class to exploit it even more intensely. So that in fact, contrary to the Marxist leftist view, the women are not exploited as domestic workers. In reality, we discovered that we were being even more exploited precisely because we were not paid. So, we, and in that way, that understanding opened also a whole big window on the logic of capitalist society. The capitalism extracts unpaid labor, not only from the work day of the wage worker, but extracts unpaid labor from the work day of millions and millions of workers, women, colonial, of course, we knew about slavery. And uh, so, and then we saw the continuity between our struggle and the struggle of all these other subjects who historically have been marginalized in the account of the left. You know, they're always placed on the pedestal, the industrial worker, as the, the one who is the main subject of capitalist accumulation and the one who basically uh, has in his hands the future of the communist revolution. So for us, it was really a Copernican revolution. You know, we shifted the focus from the factory to the home, to the community, to the house with the reproduction. We began to look at with new eyes, you know, to this work. What is involved? All the many different tasks of a work 
that is always considered unskilled, unskilled. And we look at the family relation and sexual relation as relations of production. We looked at, uh, you know, even domestic violence, even domestic violence we saw as part of a disciplining, of a work discipline, right? So that by means of the wage, we saw also the wage as a political instrument, very much a political instrument, and saw that by means of the wage, the capitalist class delegates to the male wage worker the power to supervise you know, women in the home. So that the matrimonial contract became a work contract, became a work contract, and a contract that didn't stipulate it, but basically allowed men to also discipline women if they did not do the work of reproduction on a day-to-day -day basis according, according to the necessity of the capitalist organizational work. There's a very original reading of, of Marx at the core, I think, of Taliban and the witch. Both, like you said, that in Marxism, it's always the male body that's exploited and the industrial worker is the worker. But yeah. there's another very, very good point in the book, which is that in classic Marxist theory, you say, well, capitalism was a revolutionary force when it came. It was a progressive step forward. There were feudal authorities. There were church authorities. But then came capitalism, and it was the first step. But in your book, the point is that capitalism, when it came, was actually a counter-revolution. And, and I think this is such an interesting uh, reading. How did you come up with this view? I think it was very clear to me once I started reading, when I started, began the research work on Caliban and the Witch, and I began to read the story of the Middle Ages. You know, the story of the Middle Ages, particularly as uh, it was taught in the schools. I don't know about now. I hope it's taught in a better way. Yes. It was starting when I went to school in Italy in the post-war period. And you know something? I also went, I also uh, continued to study history, the history of the Middle Ages at the university. So not only in, in elementary or high school, but nevertheless, I was never introduced to the struggle that were taking place. It was always the matter of king, king of king, queens, and a very, very institutional story. But when I began to read it, I realized that the Middle Age was very, very different <laughs> from the world that I had imagined. It was a world that was far from being static. It was a world that was pervaded all throughout Europe from struggle, you know, struggle from the peasantry, you know, against the feudal lords. And this was a daily struggle, you know, so, People generally were compensated, not by wages, you know, but by land. They were given land and they were given users' rights, you know, users' rights to basically, you know, grazing area, to uh, the possibility of taking fuel and from woods, the possibility of fishing in ponds and lakes you know, what we call the commons, right? Yes. There were certain communal rights. And that had created also a collective spirit. You know, decisions were made collectively, when to sow, 
when to harvest, no? And uh, the uh, decision were taken in assemblies. So, and there was a continuous daily struggle on the feudal manor about, you know, what to take and not to take, how to stretch these rights, how to stretch the user's rights, no? And then of course there was multiple struggle against the church because people look at the church as a spiritual institution, but the church was a power. The church was nothing different, was something different, but very connected and very intrinsically rooted in the feudal power. The church and the baron, you know, were part of the same class. They had the same objective. They were both exploitative force. The church had armies. You know, the Pope had his own armies. <laughs> and uh, before it was stripped of, uh, before, first of all, the power of the church in Europe was weakened by the Protestant split, the Protestant revolt, right? They divided the church in two worlds. And then later on with the Italian world of independence, the Vatican was uh, stripped from his lands. Italians were the first who actually moved war against the Vatican and took away its land. Uh, so then now the Vatican is this little piece of territory, you know, stuck near Rome. But so I discovered a whole world of incredible struggle and a world that, and a struggle that by the 15th century, as I write in Caliban, you know, had taken on really had taken on the, the character, you know, of, of mass revolt. And in some cases, almost war. I speak of the war of the Remensas in Spain, you know, the, and then there had been the, the big rebellion of 1381 in England. So you have this mass, mass revolt that now are bringing together thousands and thousands of people all throughout countries. And in fact, the world revolt, they put an end to feudal power. You know? And then I speak also of the erratic movement that these revolts were not only based on uh, what would you call economic demands you know, and the liberation from all the restrictions they were posed on the peasantry and the artisan, you know, uh, but they also had a cultural, you know, the erratic movement was a social movement. It was not concerned with heresy. It was a movement that basically, you know, opposed inequality, opposed the power of the church, contested the idea that the church had property and forced people to pay, pay for communion, pay for concession, pay for all the practices. You know? So, uh, and I showed how these uh, struggle you know, by the, the end, the middle of the 15th century, we're placing you know, the feudal order in crisis. That you have an order that cannot reproduce itself. And then of course here, the role of the Black Death, this big epidemic that decimates one third of the European population and inevitably undermines people live with the fear, with the the uh, sensation they're going to die undermines the, the social order. And it becomes very difficult also for the ruling class you know, to, maintain, to maintain its power, its control over the peasantry. 
at a time when people are dying, when entire areas are becoming depopulated. So this is what I discovered. And it became clear, right, that the movement of enclosure and that, you know, the, the violent way in which, you know, the rebellions were, you know, defeated, suffocated, the bloody violence and were the foundation, you know, of the new capitalist system, of the new system that develops, which it more and more takes on the form of a capitalist system. So we have this moment where the established institutions, they're under threat from the heretical movement. We have yeah. disorder all over Europe. And yeah. the heretic movement ascribes high status to women. So women yeah. actually had a higher status in the heretic movement. And the way I understand it, this is when the church actually invents the witch to kind That's of attack. Very much, very much. In fact, in Germany, uh, another another in Switzerland, you know, the first uh, the first uh, phase of the witch hunt in the first phase of the witch hunt, witches are called heretics. Witchcraft is described as a new form of um, of heresy. That's why the first, yeah. And in fact, witchcraft begins to appear, you know, in the second part, mid of the 15th century. You know, in the later, later, you know, period, a later, later phase of the struggle of the church against the heretic movement, right? Which was a, a true war. The church launched the true war against heresy. And heresy in particular against the Cathars, right? Against the Valdensians. The Valdensians still live in Italy. Hmm. They're still Valdensian churches in the mountains of Piemonte. I had a Valdensian uh, history professor. <laughs> I went to, to university in Bologna. And one of the women of the feminists that I met in, in, in Bologna, actually, uh, in the 70s, later became a priestess in a Valdensian church, you know, a lay priestess. The Valdensians are very lay and they always opened the door to women. They allowed women to practice the sacrament, for instance, which was completely forbidden. I mean, the church was absolutely, still is, absolutely masculinist, patriarchal institution. They also did not want the priest that, you know, they forbid the priest to form union with women, marriages and concubinage, because they were afraid that by procreating, by having families, they would divide up the property of the church, which was very substantial. The church was a big exploiter, was a big owner of wealth, still out, still out. <laughs> But then you write in the book that it started with the churches, but then it becomes the witch hunts become a political project. Right. Uh, and to please explain how it's who initiated it and how was it concerted? Well, I mean, it's very simple because by the by the late 15th, 16th century, by particularly in the 16th century. So in the period when you have the, the great witch hunts. When witch hunting becomes, you know, a phenomenon that spread to most parts of Europe, right? Uh, in that period, those who are moving the accusation, those who are instituting the trial, 
those who are organizing the execution is the state and the state, the, the, the local and, and national government. In France, for example, in France, executions had to be approved by the parliament. Uh, in England, the witch hunts are begun after the passing of different laws. Three times, three legislation were passed and the legislation established that there is a new crime, it's called witchcraft, and this crime has this characteristic and, and then people were incited to make denunciation, right? And for example, in the last one, I think was 1609, the last law under James, James I, established that um, which accused witches, women accused of witchcraft could actually be executed regardless of evidence of any crime. Just the fact that she was considered a witch was enough of a capital crime. And of course the witch was described as being the servant of the devil, a woman who with magical art, you know, who destroy humans, animals, create hurricane and destroy property. And she would participate in very, very demonic assemblies, the Sabbath, where there'll be massive copulation between uh, you know, people of the same sex and women with the devil, right? So you know, it's clear that uh, what goes into the ideology you know, of, of witchcraft, it's a combination of um, you know, elements taken from the Bible, Eve, you know, Christianity is a very misogynous, sorry for the Christian, but it's a very misogynous religious. You know, Eve is the one that brings evil into the world. Pandora, then we have Pandora, the famous Pandora. So there is a whole history of misogyny, you know, in what we call European culture. I say what we call because the concept of Europe it's a concept that is very recent. It's born in the 16th century. There was no Europe before the 16th century. It was not called Europe. The way, the way now we configure the world, historically, politically, geographically, is very, it's, I wrote a book, but I edited the book, you know, there was a critique of the idea of Western civilization, showing that this concept was a very manufactured concept and has very little historical basis. <laughs> but in any case, this is a different story. Uh, so there is a, there is a, throughout the 16th century, in uh, different parts of Europe, there is a, a construction, there is a construction which add always new elements, you know, to the concept of witchcraft, to the concept of who is a witch. And, you know, the witch hunt, basically continues for almost three centuries. And in that process, even the concept of the witch goes into transformation. Very interesting in an early period is a collective concept. The witch is always seen as part of a collectivity. Witchcraft is a collective crime. So you arrest one woman and you torture her sometimes to death to make her confess the name of the other women. So the witch hunts were very important 
in the construction of a new discipline, yes. new forms of control of our women, to the construction of the role that women would play in capitalist society. And one condition for the discipline was the destruction of the solidarity that women had with each other. They had been rooted materially, you know, in the fact that in the feudal world, most women did collective work. The feudal world was a very collective world, was a very communal work. The fact that the land was often cultivated in common and women, the reproductive work of women was done communally. I often mention that uh, when I travel around uh, different parts of Europe today, I'm always interested in discovering that, you know, everywhere from Basque country to parts of Italy, I don't know about Sweden, you know, I often find the evidence that women washed their clothes collectively, that often at the center of villages, you have these very big cement tubs. <laughs> yes. Cement tubs, you know, first of all, not in the home, but out. And these were places where women would bring their clothes and then they would talk. And so there'll be a whole exchange of information. What we then gets defined as gossip, right? So the witch hunt is a major war. It's a major attack against this solidarity, against it. And it's part of a re-channeling of women's loyalty and work, you know, re-channeling towards the family, towards the nuclear family, towards the husband, towards the child, towards the reproduction, you know, of, of basically a workforce. There's a whole re-channeling, right? That of course is not done overnight. It's a long struggle, but of course, yeah. But the, the, the women were a collectivity. And uh, you can see that in so many ways. I speak of the mystery play, you know, the, 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 the yeah. So um, this is institutional because it was organized by the state, no question. Today is different. We have witch hunts today. And uh, today the state seems to be above it all, appears to be above it all. Today we have, you know, People from the communities, often in complicity with local chiefs in Africa, in India, in, in throughout the Middle Ages, throughout the 16th, 17th, and early 18th century, it is the state. So that's why it's a political. Yeah. So there are legislation, state people, judges, lawyers, they go around communities, they collect denunciations, they organize the trial. They organized the execution. The church never wanted to organize execution, even during the period of the Inquisition. They always claimed that their hands could not touch blood. And they always, so, yes. They so, always, sorry? No. They always basically consigned the people they accused, heretic or witches, they consigned them to the state. So it was a very state thing. And, and uh, what I tried to do in the Caliban and the witches to show why, why the state comes in, right? And I showed that the witch hunt is part of the war the capitalism launches you know, against the, the uh, lower classes, you know, is one 
fundamental aspect of the war, to defeat rebellion, to break resistances to the new order, and to create new type of subjectivities that are necessary for the kind of work and control that uh, a capitalist organization of work requires. So there are several effects of the witch hunt. Uh, it's a, it, it, it opens a regime of controlling the women's body and it divides the working classes between the reproductive work and the industrial worker, a division that well, even... No, no, that's that's, that's uh, that, that the industrial work, no, reproductive and not in the black, wage and wage. Oh, it, yes. Industry comes later. There's yes. no industrial in the commons in the world in the sense that we intend today is the 18th century. The first factories are around 1870, 1790. You don't, before you have the system of manufacture. Before, the way a capitalist industry develops, you have put the put-out system where the merchant goes to different places to give her and then collects the cloth, mostly textile. Then you have the manufacture, when they begin to bring people under the same roof. And then you have the industry proper, the factory, where you have the mechanical production. So this is later the industry, but you have a new division of labor. Yes, you can say that the witch hunt was instrumental you know, to a new control by the state over women's reproduction, for example, with capital punishment for contraception and abortion, right? Women accused of killing children, right? It's a whole control on women's sexuality. You know, the witch is the woman who is lewd, copulates mm -hmm. the devil. Uh, when she's young, she's a prostitute. When she's old, she's a witch. So there's a whole attack on women's sexuality. And I've shown that the familiarity of women, you know, which is criminalized with animals. Mm -hmm. These old peasant women are always represented, accused of being witches. They are represented as having a cat, having a dog, right? And so there is this animalization of the woman's body, you know, and and the 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 charge of witchcraft, you know, that demonologists. The monologist argued, you know, was specifically fit for women. It is women who become predominant, is predominantly women who become witches. And the monology explained it. The women were more corporeal. Women were more bodiced, more animal. They lacked reason. The rational power, the capacity to reason, to control their instinct. Women are instinctual beings. So this all devaluation, the, the witch hunt was very, very important to the creation of women, you know, as this instinctual um, uh, being dominated by their passion, by their lust, by their envy, being, being powerless. They were very envious, you know, but above all, lacked reason, lacked rational power. And, uh, and this is one they will be more easily seduced by the devil. This is why the devil had a good entry, more than men. In fact, the few men, fewer 
who were accused or exec and executed often were relatives of women who were accused, often with people who had tried to save them, save their mother, save their lover, save their sister. And there were a few who were practicing magical arts. But the majority, 89% in some period, the majority, as, as uh, Larna, Christina Larna has shown for Scotland, she said clearly, witch hunt was a war against women because for law, particularly at the height of the witch hunt, it's really 80, 89% who are women. So it's a whole orchestration you know, that important because creates a new division of labor, a new discipline over women's body and women's work, women's social life, gives to the state, institutes the power of the state to regulate women's body, procreation, sexuality, establishes the subordination of women to men, because women have to be controlled, they're out, they're out of control. So creates the logical justification and the social justification for male dominance over women, which was not new, but gives it a new foundation, strengthens actually the reason for the dominance of, of women, breaks up the collectivity of women, makes women's friendship very suspicious. Now you have your women friend, no? I've shown uh, in another book that the, the concept of the, the word for women in English, gossip, the word for friend, female friend, gossip, changes, you know, in the two centuries of the witch hunt. And from female god friend, we have uh, idle talk, empty talk, women's talk, gossip, women, right? So the whole devaluation of the knowledge, the women, the experience, the knowledge, there is a major, major transformation. Women come out of the witch hunt, different social subjects. Obviously they rebel, obviously there is a whole, it's not so simple, but from the point of view of the state, there's a new idea of what is the role of women. You know? And in fact, even into the 18th century, even after the French Revolution, in parts of Europe, women have no legal personality. They have to be represented by the state, by a male authority. So the devaluation is very massive. And also we cannot, you have to add, the witch hunts are also exported to the colony. They are exported, particularly Brazil, Brazil, Mexico, Colombia. So there's a whole story. Eventually, in time, the missionaries, the, the priests, and so on, bring witch hunting, you know, across the world. This continues today, by the way, because there's, no. a, there's a massive involvement of the Protestant sects, you know, in the areas. Uh, where there is witch hunting, particularly Pentecostal, right? They are spreading still the idea of Satan, witchcraft. This continues actually to, the, to this day. So if we take it up to today, like, like, like you did here, on the one hand, it's obvious capitalism has changed. They need a woman workforce. They need the women to, to come out and, and contribute to the value creation in, in the market place and a lot of new rights ha have been gained. 
And on the other hand, you still see some remnants of the witch hunt in our culture. You still see some control over the, the female body. And very often with the counter to that will be, we want to control our own bodies. And it's a big debate about abortion, pro-choice and pro-life. But when I read your book, I think, well, a control of for the individual woman over her own body cannot just be about abortion. It must be about the entire economic system. Yes. And the individual body at the same time. Absolutely. And about the relation of women to men, right? Because the moment you say no, the moment you say the women cannot control their body, then they cannot control their sexuality and cannot control their life. And then men take on a whole role, you know, of control, of management, of uh, supervision. And uh, in, in this way, you're absolutely right. The struggle around abortion. It's a struggle that is much broader than the question of whether a woman can actually have an abortion or not. It's really a struggle about what kind of role women have. It's really so the war on abortion is a war on women's struggle for autonomy, struggle for not being dependent on men, you know, struggle for the not being forced, even when they work outside the home, you know, to the to, to jobs that are an extension of housework, underpaid, often a very hazardous condition, as you have in the free export zones that are being proliferating in the last 30 years across the world, that have really no rules, no limits, you know, in terms of time and in terms of hazardous condition to women's health. So abortion is a very, very big issue. And I often insist, and it's part of a long, what we see today is part of a long war that capitalism has waged to women's bodies and lives. You know, in the 50s, for instance, people have forgotten. And in Scandinavia as well, lots of women, thousands were lobotomized. The yes. lobotomy, can you imagine? And lobotomy again, was deemed un inappropriate for men because men had higher responsibility and jobs. If you work in a factory, you're working with instruments and uh, you cannot damage them. Instruments that are costly. And so you have to be very alert. But for women, when they refused housework, when they were unhappy, they were not doing the job in the home, then lobotomy, was considered the proper answer. And housework was considered not requiring any particular skill. So you could actually cut. Horrible. Women have been sterilized. Uh, in, the, in the late uh, 1970s, 1980s, you know, the World Health Organization, the US government waged the whole war you know, uh, against women in the third world, accusing them of bringing poverty into their community by having too many children. So the population explosion, all of a sudden, and I, I believe this was a response to the anti-colonial struggle. Hmm. I believe this was a response to the rise of a new generation of African, you know, of Asian, who were struggling to get back the wealth taken away from them. 
that in response, you have, uh, you know, the population explosion. No, you don't allow them to be born. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so this whole attack on reproduction, which is then immediately an attack on women. It's women having too many children. You know, these animal creatures, they're reproducing like, like rabbits, right? And they are bringing poverty into the world. So once again, another witch hunt in different, and, and also new, new weapons, these, uh, Depo-Provera, these forms of the IUD, these forms of birth control, the women cannot control. They cannot take them away, right? Without hurting themselves, right? So we see there is a big continuity. The capitalist class from the beginning to today have looked at the women's body as an economic resource. The women's body is very important because it can reproduce or not reproduce new workers, new people, new rebels. So controlling is like a machine. They look at us like a machine. They have to control this machine because we are putting new people into the world or refuse to put people into the world. And they see this is a major. Imagine if all women stop having children, the world <laughs> There's a Tell, there's a struggle. Now there's a big struggle to reproduce children outside the women's body. Capitalism now is investing bioengineering. Bioengineering has been a big, big, big thing since the women's movement. They want to reproduce, have the control of the reproduction of life. And this they call progress. <laughs> They want to have the control so they don't have to deal with these rebel creatures that are called women. That's what is happening. I have one last question, sure. which is when I read the Beyond the Periphery of the Skin, which is a wonderful book yeah. and a beautiful title. There was a, there's a passage that was very interesting because it reminded me of my own childhood in the yeah. 70s. My mother, she was a very militant feminist, and she always said we must reject the patriarchy's Aesthetics. We oh. must be against the aesthetics of the of the patriarchy. And she said, "Well, you know, we must be against the division of women into the beautiful and the ugly, oh. because this is foundational for the yes. machine that's taking advantage of our bodies." And then I realized you write exactly the same thing. You speak of the rejection of the aesthetic discipline in the 1970s and the refusal to be divided. So this is what I grew up with. But I've been thinking, I've been thinking a lot since then that what actually did happen, because on the one hand, you saw very strong women's liberation, you saw big progress. On the other hand, it seems that this capitalist aesthetic, it came creeping through the back door and now it's all over the place. Yeah. So this is part of the way. See, look, you have to admit. Capitalism has been very, very smart, particularly uh, they have learned. They have learned from our struggle. They always study our struggle and then they use, they, they use part of, of our ideology, our, what, our demands, and they refurbish them in a way that actually has the opposite goal. And this has happened with the women's movement, all, 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 emancipation through wage labor, or everything, they, the way starting with the UN in 1975, the four conferences of the UN. And now all government, I mean, many governments are feminists. The United States, they're all feminists. 
Of course, they have not done anything to really change you know, the conditions of the production. On the contrary, there is a war on the production. The, 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 the uh, means of the production, the, the resources that are necessary for family to reproduce themselves. We have people sleeping in the street. We have, right now, more than a million people have been kicked off Medicaid. They've really abolished, you know, some of the money that was given during COVID, taken away. The, the condition of the production in this country, particularly for black people, are horrendous. No, but then there's all feminism, as always, uh, at least uh, in, in, in the uh, present administration. So, you know, this ideology, right, the idea, question of aesthetics, like with abortion, it's much bigger than the question of beauty, right? It's much bigger. It has been a way to divide women, to impose a whole new discipline to reaffirm the idea, you know, that one of the tasks of women is to please men, is to serve men, is to, you know, uh, reproduce them emotionally, physically, and also the beauty, sexuality, make yourself attractive. And this has been a tremendous, tremendous amount of work for women. You know, the work of the diets, the, you know, the dressing, the makeup, the hair, and, and an incredible source of alienation. Every woman is unhappy about her body. So many women are unhappy, even when they are beautiful. Uh, because they and alienated from the body, distant, because you look at yourself in the mirror, not with the eyes, not with solidarity with your bodies, but with the eyes of the market. You all look at yourself with the eyes of the man that you're going to encounter, of the employers, are they going to employ you? How are you going to look? Yeah, are you attractive enough? Are you beautiful enough? Are you too beautiful? Exactly. So you always have the eye of the market. In a way, the men do not. And then all the work, as I said, the die and the division from other women. So beauty has become really a tremendous means of sexual objectification for women, has become another means of devaluation for those who are not considered beautiful, for the older women who don't have beauty any longer. So the older woman's bodies, it's, it's a body that is considered, you know, uh, not attractive, not worth, not, not valuable, not valuable from the point of view of being a woman. This is a tremendous, it's a tremendous damage that is done. And I think it's been very important that women fought against it. But I think that the state has been very skillful and they have a tremendous, you know, uh, they have a tremendous uh, orchestration, ideological, the media, the cosmetic companies, pharmaceutical companies, they have tremendous amount of means to create Right? So now you have a new generation of women right, who are told, yes, the right to be beautiful, which is uh, proclaimed in very commercial ways, in very commercial way. There's a relaunching of the idea that, oh, to have power is to be beautiful. We shouldn't be ashamed. The families were killjoy, killjoy families, ugly families. 
you know, the families were all into shaving themselves and being like, uh, you know, like nuns. You're not supposed, that's not true. There's been a distortion, a complete distortion. It's not true that families were against beauty. Is what do we mean by beauty? What is beauty? What does it consist of? No. And so today, there is a whole beauty industry. There is a tremendous beauty industry, which is now giving, using the, the language of feminism, presenting empowerment as the right to, you know, lipstick and this and that, showing your breast, showing your body, et cetera, et cetera. So I would say to the new generation, and many, of course, call themselves post-feminists. And, uh, you know, but recently I saw, it was a beautiful t-shirt worn um, by a feminist, Maria Mies, who just died, one of the best, most important feminists of our time. You know, they said, I will be a post-feminist in a post-patriarchal world. And the imposition of beauty is still a very, very patriarchal instrument. And I think the younger women, this is why the intergenerational communication is so important. And we really have, and I hope that my work contribute to that intergenerational discourse, because younger women now are being really presented a very distorted manufactured view of what feminism was in the 70s. You know, again, the image of the ugly, you know, uh, rude, uh, killjoy feminist, the killjoy that, you know, denies the right of women to enjoy the beauty of their body. Not, nothing like that. Nothing like that. Rather, you no, know, refusal of being treated like the object. Refusal like being treated, you know, by, you know, and being valued according to standards that we have not decided. Standards set by the cosmetic industry or other industry as to what consider beauty. So that you struggle, struggle to fit that standard, you know? And uh, so that's, that's, I think, I hope that, uh, and you're lucky that you had a mother that taught you when you were a child. Well, thank you, uh, Silvia Federici. It's such a pleasure talking to you. Your book is such a gift to the Danish audience and I look very much forward to introducing it. Thank you for your time. Thank, and you. thank you. For thank you very much. Thank you to you. And thank you. I'm very happy the book will be published. Bye. Bye. Det her var så min samtale med Silvia Federici. Bogen hedder Caliban og Heksen. Den er oversat til dansk af Emma Holten, og den er udgivet på informationsforlag. Og hvis man sidder og tænker, hvilken fantastisk bog, den bliver nødt til at læse, og det vil der være mange, der tænker, så kan man gå ind på butik.information.dk, så kan man gå derind og købe den. Og hvis man så oven købet er abonnent, og det er jo altid en god idé at være det, så får man også en rabat på bogen. Den her samtale blev produceret og redigeret af vores gode kammerat og meget køndige hjælper, Mads Adam Wiener. I næste uge vender vi tilbage til krigen i Israel og Palæstina. Der taler jeg med den fremtrædende amerikanske jødiske forfatter og intellektuelle Peter Beinart. Tak for nu. Tak for at du lyttede med. Mit navn er Rune Løbeberg.